Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is a real joy, really a high point that we planned for this trip, a conversation with Sir Howard Davies of RBS and, of course, formerly in Science Po and LSE, and Jonathan Fenby of T.S. Lombard. And, of course, Sir Howard and I celebrate his wonderful one volume on France. Is Mr. Macron mentioned in your book? Uh, only briefly at the end, I'm afraid. But I hope there'll be a new edition out before you're long. You're going to do an afterword? Fair enough. He's only just come onto the political yeah, scene yeah, in fairly rapid already. form. Yeah. What did you think of the Louvre celebration and that long walk? Yeah. It wasn't something I would think John Fenby would approve. Oh, I, I did. I thought it was tremendous. I yeah. sat there watching it on television, and I thought, hey, you know, this guy, he's got the drama right. Whoever well, did come it, on, he's him. walking in the palace, the, the palace of the 16th century yeah. kings, which you touch on early in your book. Was there a symbolism there of a museum that we all go to, or is it the symbolism of royalty from another time and place? He's a kind of modern monarch, I think, and he was playing that, and it was wonderful if you looked at it when the replays, the shadow, his shadow falling behind on the gateway as he came through was absolutely out of a, a first straight film. He was looking towards the carousel, though, as well. Like, if you think about kind of Napoleon and... Geography. Yes. When you think about what happens next, I, we heard it described earlier as a, as a four-part story. Absolutely. And we're through two of them. Two are still to come. Is, is the easy bit over for Mr. Macron? Does it I, get harder from here? I think in retrospect, yes. I mean, it's not never easy to win the presidency of France, but he had such a lot of luck with yep. Fillon and other people with the socialists splitting and yep. so on. I mean, <clears throat> you know, this was handed to him on a silver plate and anybody up against Le Pen in the second round was going to win. Uh, so, yes, but actually there are probably five <laughs> more acts to come. There are the two rounds of the parliamentary yep. election on June the 11th and June the 18th, and then I would guess there'll be a lot of street theatre after that from the hard left, the Mélenchon people, with Le Pen approving. So we're probably into a, a long-running saga. What kind of a person, and I'd be interested to get both your take on this, does he need to appoint as Prime Minister? Howard. Well, I think it depends on what kind of majority there is oh, in yeah. Parliament. I mean, if the Republicans... But he needs to appoint them before. He needs to... uh, well, he, the, I think there'll be an interim. There's a short-term Prime Minister right. now. Get, uh, get yes, prime I, think, I think that's Who right. might stay on right. if yeah. the unexpected happens and all Marsh, his party, gets a majority or close to a working majority mm, yeah. in the parliamentary election. Sir Howard, I, I analyze everything through Uber drivers. I was going orally <laughs> into the hotel... And the Uber driver, the first thing he said is Madame Lagarde should be helping out. Should Christine Lagarde come back to France and assist Mr. Macron? Well, the difficulty about Christine Lagarde in France is, of course, that, you know, th there was a legal case yeah. which, uh, uh, where she was kind of convicted but then not sentenced. Yeah. Um, and so, whereas that's rather forgotten about in Washington mm -hmm. and elsewhere, in France, I'm afraid that still does resonate. Right. So it's not completely straightforward for Christine Lagarde to take a mm. senior position in France. How do I you... think somebody from 
that international world more likely to come in is Pascal Lamy. Right. Yes. Interesting. Um, Interesting. You know, that... Yes, a much, much more straightforward person. And, of course, you know, the, Madame Le Pen did win 35% of the vote saying anti-globalisation. And there's nobody more globalisation mm-hmm. than Christine Lagarde. So right. I'm not sure you'd want to go there with Macron Lagarde. Sir, let me start with you. If we're doing hope and audacity redux here with Mr Macron, what is the audacity that the new president of France needs? Well, I think he does need to do some quite symbolic things on labor market reform because otherwise I think the rest of the world will not believe that anything's changed in France. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, some of those things you can argue up and hill and down Dale about 35-hour week and how significant it really is, but internationally it has achieved a totemic status and you have to do something about that because otherwise I think your rhetoric aren't about you... reopening France for business yeah. and attracting urban investment will not work. Aren't you just charging headlong into the unions if you do that. Isn't there a workaround? Isn't there a smarter way of well, doing it? That's not so much the question. unions. I mean, the unions are not that significant, frankly. They don't have very much membership. Really? It's more the street. Do you yes, agree I mean, with that? Okay. Unions. Yeah, it's the street. And also the union is more nuanced than it used to be because the CFDT, which has always been the reformist union, now has more members than the hardline CGT. But, but nevertheless, isn't the point, well, isn't the point still stand that, that don't, I work around it, don't work against it? Well, this is going to be the difficulty that everything Macron would do, the kind of thing Howard's mm, talking yeah. about, on the working week, on cutting corporate tax, which is the highest in the EU, which you should do, on exempting investments from the wealth tax and so on, all these, of mm. course, will be seen by the left and by the street as proof right. that, yes, indeed, he is the puppet of international globalised finance. I'm going to say this worldwide. I've, you've said it for weeks. John Fenby's book, you rush through this history with a beautiful uh, writing skill. And one of the great enigmas within the book is you start to sting. Yep. Compare Macron, as we heard interview after interview, yep. with Valerie Giscard de Saint. Is that apt? Yes, absolutely. He's, he's the one I would go back to for Macron, including the fact that, of course, Giscard didn't have a parliamentary majority when he started and was dependent yep. on the Gaullists, who eventually stabbed him in the back with Jacques Chirac. And you could have the same thing with the Republicans being the main force in Parliament after June the 18th and Macron dependent on them. Now, that could work because a lot of their ideas are very similar, mm-hmm. but the Republicans are going to want, just like the Gaullists right. in the 70s, to preserve their own identity. Sir Howard, does France need a different euro than Germany? I don't mean separate from the euro, but what are those relative valuations? How far apart is a good euro for Germany from a good euro for France? I don't personally think that there's a much difference between Germany and France. There's a different argument if you're talking about Italy, for example. But if you look, French productivity has actually matched German productivity reasonably well over quite a long period. The French problem is more that they do have sclerotic labour markets and too high public expenditure and too high taxation. I don't think it's a problem of the competitiveness of the French trading sector, which is mm-hmm. very highly competitive. I mean, the French produce, you know, almost 30% per hour more than we do in tr- the traded sector. So I don't think the answer for France is a decline in the euro. It, the answer for France is a rebalancing of their economy away from the public yep. sector. Jonathan, uh, as the UK leaves, the relationship between Germany and France becomes closer, yeah. int- closer more interesting and probably in favour of France as a result of the, the, the kind of the, the, the three-way split changing. How does Mr Macron take Germany along for the ride? And, and, and is he the guy to do it? He's very pro-Europe. We heard sure. the music. We've heard, seen the flags. Is he 
going to be changing Europe in a meaningful way and will the Germans be on board with it? I think it's the best chance of something meaningful happening over the next couple of years. He's already worked with the Germans. He's drawn up various uh, plans for going into the fiscal side of the euro with the Social Democrats, admittedly. But uh, I was in Berlin a couple of weeks ago and certainly the people mm. around CDU, around Merkel, they're very anxious to work with Macron. And I think they may okay, cut okay, him a bit of okay. uh, easy, ease right. on the budget and the deficit things over the next couple of years so long as, to go back to what Howard says, he delivers mm. some reforms. Sir Howard, a final question to you before you start your day for RBS. What do you need from Janet Yellen right now? We have not talked about the American Central Bank. What does Chair Yellen need to do in the coming weeks? Well, I think she needs to do what she said she's going to do, and uh, that would be fine, I think. And also, I think probably the Fed does need some greater clarity about how it's going to reduce the size of its balance sheet. Mm -hmm. My own view is that central bank balance sheets in the medium mm -hmm. term and the long term are going to be bigger than they used to be, but not as big as they are no. now. And I think they need to find some way of edging that balance sheet down. And that's, I think, the big conundrum that we're right. looking for. Maybe edging is the new Sir Howard phrase for tapering as well. Thank you so much for a generous uh, set of time this morning. Sir Howard Davies is chairman of RBS. Eric Nielsen joins us from Berlin. He's the chief economist with the Unicredit Group. And let's start with the French election, uh, if we could here, Eric. Uh, and let me just get your sense of, of what import we can draw from it. Of course, there's domestic significance. But when you look at its importance to Europe, uh, to the Eurozone, uh, give us your sense of, of what, what, uh, what we can draw from that. Yeah, hi. I, I think the good, it's good news uh, on two accounts. Uh, first and foremost, uh, it sort of brings a... Uh, a French kind of a leadership role back in place as Europe had originally, but we had been frozen during the Sarkozy and the Hollande period. So mm. Germany had been looking for, for a good French connection or a French uh, partner in, in a lot of this. And if anything, the risk is now that the French are going to get more Euro, pro-European than, than the Germans uh, and, and wanted to do more than, than the present German government want to do. But, but certainly it's a big move in that direction. Secondly, um, it, it, it's a big message that there, to the European politicians and other places, including Italy, that there is a, a victory to be gained by being unashamedly pro-European. It's the first time we've had a clear choice in a country between somebody really European. Notice that when he walked out in front of the Louvre, yeah. he had, did not have the French national anthems playing, but the European one. This is a big message across Europe, I think. Eric, draw the contrast, if you would, between the economy in Germany, where you are right now, uh, in, and France. Uh, how, how different are these two economies within Europe? Uh, they're different, but not nearly as different as you think. Uh, let me start by reminding you and the, the, the listeners that uh, since 1999, if you look at real GDP, France has actually done better than Germany. So cumulative since the introduction of the euro, the French real GDP is up a slight, a couple of percentage points more than the German. So we get very excited about these cycles and swings and, and, and all the rest of it. But these are not that different economies at the end of the day. And none of the two economies have severe imbalances. If anything, Germany has a too big current account surplus, but, but uh, not the negative ones that, that sort of spill trouble right around the corner. Um, that said, uh, the, the labor market is, is more rigid, particularly for younger people in, in uh, France. But again, if you look at the OECD indicators for rigidities, the two countries are quite similar. Uh, but, 
but surely there is more rigidities in the French economy. That means that it, it dips less in recessions and accelerates less in the recoveries. And that's exactly what we've seen. But when you look through it for, for a decade or so, they perform incredibly, incredibly alike. Eric Nielsen with the Unicredit Group with us here on Bloomberg Surveillance from Bloomberg Radio. You talk about labor market uh, rigidities, uh, and this uh, president-elect has promised to change some of those or lessen some of those. What kind of difference could that make to the French uh, economy? If he were to make progress on that, and I use uh, the, the, the word were there, how difficult an undertaking is this going to be? It's difficult. Uh, they have unions who are already on the streets now, but he has a mandate, you could argue, um, and I would suggest that what he needs to do and probably want, will do is not a lot. Uh, you could, and it, he doesn't necessarily have to do a whole lot. Mm. Uh, what he, I think the, the most obvious one would be to copy the German uh, flexible labor laws for the youth unemployed that Germany did with the Schroeder reforms way back. Uh, and a lot of these temporary employments in Germany have actually been merged into permanent employment since. Uh, so there's certainly a a lift, a, 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 an idea to be lifted there that, that could help on that side. The other one, which I think is important, not only in France, but throughout Europe and in Italy included, is to lower the payroll tax. So, the, so it, is, it is ironic that politicians say they want people in employment and they tax employers who, who try to employ people, and particularly young people who in this world economy in Europe struggle to make a return for the company they work for that matches the cost of them. So why not cut the, the, the tax on the payroll? So, and I think that's something he will be doing. President Trump spoke with uh, with the president-elect of France, Emmanuel Macron, yesterday by by phone. I imagine the relationship that we're going to be paying the closest attention to, though, is uh, Mr. Macron's relationship with uh, Angela Merkel. Uh, how well do you think they get along? Uh, how important is that relationship going to be going forward? I think it's going to be incredibly important. Um, I would, uh, it, as I said, the Germans are, have been, been longing for a French leader who is willing to, to pick up uh, joint leadership on issues with relations with Russia and Ukraine and, and now with the U.S., which has become a more tricky partner, to, for sure. But to, to sort of, of take it on the European economic side, I think the important thing here is that Macron needs to do something for the Germans first. He needs to pledge a degree of fiscal discipline. So he sort of puts to rest this constant German fear that the, that the French are just running away with the fiscal and ultimately want to be paid off by Germans. He needs to make that very, very clear. And he needs to address some of the labor market issues we just talked about. And once he's done that, there will be scope, uh, probably only after the election in Germany, for, for further cooperation, certainly on security matters, but uh, there could also be other issues. Uh, the capital markets reform could be accelerated. Mm. The banking reform, banking union could be completed. And maybe, maybe they're certainly talking in Berlin about a, an attempt to do something on unemployment uh, benefits. Eric Nielsen with us. He's the chief economist at the Unicredit Group. My uh, co-host Tom Keane has traded the Senate in for the Thames. Joins us now from our bureau in London. And, Tom, I trust the uh, the Eurostar ride was uneventful. Why can't this be in America? I think it's because it's a sinkhole of money. But I'll tell you, it is a beautiful uh, and very successful train ride. Thank you, Eurostar, uh, for your care uh, yesterday. From London, from New York, Bloomberg Surveillance. With us, Eric Nielsen uh, from Berlin this morning. He is with Unicredit. Eric, we talk about this, that, and the other thing. But it does circle back, certainly for our American listeners to the U.S. dollar. What does the Unicredit call on dollar stability, or do we see a triche-like brutal move in the months ahead? No, we don't have. We don't think it's going to be a brutal move, Tom. I mean, I think the, 
So we have we have just revised our euro dollar up uh, a bit, but this is more a euro appreciation story than a dollar depreciation story right now. In other words, from an American point of view, we think that Trump is going to be rather ineffective in sort of talking the dollar weaker. Uh, but but in trade weighted terms, it would be a bit uh, because we're seeing quite a bit of interest in, in European assets now that drives the euro stronger, obviously, and, and on the trade weighted terms that will get the dollar a little bit weaker. But we don't know. We don't expect very dramatic moves. When you when you look here uh, at, at the future of the, the European project, Russia has to loom large. We had Angela Merkel in Russia last week meeting with Vladimir Putin. How, how much of, of, of the strength of, of the European Union right now has to do just with the, the change in, in, in political trajectory, policy trajectory that we've seen in Russia? Uh, is, that, is that leading to more strength in the European Union, uh, Eric? Yeah, without a doubt, but it's not the only one, right? I mean, uh, I think you can track the, the European relationship with Putin back to his uh, reemergence as president, uh, was it in 2012, right, where... And, and his handling of the demonstrations, uh, where people start to question whether he, well, how much of a Democrat he was. Mm. Then we have the shock of, of Crimea and Ukraine. We have the shock of, of Syria and the, and the shock of the apparent, almost proven right, interference in the American election and yeah. messing around in France, apparently. So, there's a, so this is a, a, an issue. But your point is very interesting because I think it, what you have seen from a European perspective now is anybody who wanted to flirt with the idea Sometimes these same politicians, you know, in effect, we need a strong guy. So I think you look at Putin, you look at Erdogan, and you look at at least the one mm-hmm. wannabe strong guy, Trump. And the Europeans, uh, the vast majority of Europeans do not see something they like. So, you, so, so these events outside Europe have for sure uh, strengthened the ability of yeah. the mainstream politicians to say, this is not where we're going. Eric, we got to leave it there. Eric Nielsen, chief economist at the Unicredit Group. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Let's go to Steve Whiting now. He is, as I said, the global chief investment strategist at City Private Bank. Great to have you with us again, Steve, on, on surveillance. Let's start with uh, your, you. your read of what's going on uh, in Washington. Uh, the president chalked up a legislative victory. Does that give you, uh, as an investor, uh, any any better sense of what's to come? In other words, uh, what, what did that signify to you, getting that health care vote through the House? You know, I tend to have a little bit higher confidence that at the end of the day, uh, congressional Republicans and the president will manage to cut taxes, uh, whether that will be 
uh, a full-blown reform or not is to be seen. But we have to remember that with all of the either failed votes or votes that don't take place, it will take only one successful vote to change the fiscal outlook in 2018, as late as that may come. Um, you know, it could come uh, at the end of the August session. It could come later. Uh, but, uh, you know, we think of this as mostly a 2018 effect. And, uh, you know, this is uh, one sign that ultimately they, uh, with a majority, are, are not uh, in a single-party gridlock. I saw Steve Whiting once again. Earnings, I think, did better than good. You are wonderfully skilled oh, yeah. at folding earnings dynamics into the economy. Do you just equate over great earnings, great GDP? Well, I think that there is this translation issue. And, you know, it's worth mentioning, it looks like first quarter EPS for large cap U.S. companies has grown 15% from a year ago. Now, you have to remember, GDP is typically not in the United States reported on a year-to-year -year basis. Uh, it's inflation-adjusted, so reduced by the rise in inflation. And uh, we did have an excess of 2% headline inflation uh, in the first quarter, so it's not a nominal figure. So you have to adjust for all of those things. Then you have to remember that profits are just more cyclical than the economy. You know, they boom and bust around a relatively steady, steady economy. You know, laundromats and uh, hair salons are in GDP, but not in, you know, S&P profits. Mm -hmm. Steve, we just had Axel Merck on the show a few minutes ago, and Tom asked him how he plays uh, Asia. How do you regard or look at Asia right now? Where is the opportunity in Asia? Well, we've um, upgraded our view of emerging Asia in particular. And, you know, I would note that, you know, we have seen uh, decreased sensitivity in Asia to rising U.S. rates. Now you can couple that with at least the Fed's uh, forecast that its tightening cycle this time around in real terms is likely to be only about half the average tightening cycle. Uh, you have, obviously, there are all these questions, you know, what sort of debt is there in China? The questions all the time. But so many uh, investors just ignore the asset side of the balance sheet in China. And so you couple this all together, and if the U.S. is not disrupting the world with tremendously high interest rates um, or, or trade disruptions of any sort, uh, then uh, Asia should thrive. And I would say that the uh, export picture has actually been a, a real new positive surprise there. Within the positive surprise is what Sher Yellen will do and President Draghi and the rest. Are they just behind? Is it just simple to say that given better economies and the micro news that David and I hear every day, that our central banks are behind? Well, I think there's um, two ways to look at this. Um, first, first of all, they would not tell you they're behind. I, I would say to a certain extent they've changed the game. If you think about the United States, you know, since... Uh, you know, the 1970s, most of that time, it was trying to force down the inflation rate, lock in an ever lower inflation trend, use every recession as a chance uh, to make the inflation rate lower towards price stability. Uh, and, you know, for most of this cycle, the Federal Reserve has argued that the trend inflation rate is too low. Uh, they think that they might overshoot if they don't tighten to some extent. Uh, but again, the game has changed from, from that one. So uh, naturally, they go in a more mild way. I do think that balance sheet adjustment on the part of the Fed, the idea that they won't hold more bonds than they need to to conduct monetary policy the way they want, uh, that uh, is going to be a volatile event. 
And, uh, you know, it has been over the last eight years at times when the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has shrunk passively, when they have not had a new QE program. There's been some volatility around that. But I think that they will come back and, and look at that financial market impact and say, we are not going to allow you know, balance sheet normalization of this desire to have fewer bonds, you know, to override, you know, where they want to set financial conditions and set monetary policy. So in the end, I don't think the balance sheet will shrink very much. By the way, I think Ben Bernanke has written, written very well about this recently. Yeah, and t- certainly talked with Tom a little bit about that as well uh, just last week. Let's talk more about uh, the Fed here in just a few minutes. We'll come back with Steve White. Yes. He's the global chief strategist at City uh, Private Bank. So much to talk about when it comes to the Fed, also to uh, the geopolitical landscape uh, in Europe. As we look ahead to uh, the snap election where you are, Tom, in what, a month's time? Yeah, we've really turned to it with a vengeance today. And, and it's certainly front and center in all the newspapers. Guy Johnson was translating the Labor Party festivities in Manchester. Today, Manchester, David, is a city. It's outside of London. Yes. Home to the, home to the Guardian newspaper, if I'm yes. not mistaken. Or it was. Stephen, wherever I go, wherever David goes... It's all about the dearth of investment. I know you thought hard about this. Is it possible that the the new investment is a global investment that we can't even observe? Well, look, I, I think if you take a peek within most developed markets where the data are fine, the investment trend has been very modest. Um, You know, I think people who say there's been no investment, no investment, only consumption really don't have that right. You know, in the U.S., um, we had a massive investment in the energy sector. Here we are now, mid-40s on oil, not in uh, the 115 range. Uh, Other investment has been there, but it hasn't been powerful. And if we take a look, you know, country by country, there are areas where there are imbalances. Uh, China's had in some cases, probably the only country in the world with too much infrastructure investment. Um, so there are some imbalances between countries, but I don't think that it's some, some missing quotient out there. What's your, your sense? We talked about tax reform at the top of the interview with you, and uh, you expressed your optimism. We'll see some. How about for, for the kind of fiscal package that uh, President Trump talked about when he was a, a candidate? Do you, do you think we're going to get anything from, from the Congress this year? Well, I think we will. I think, but there's so many questions. How will it be financed? Does it need to be financed? Uh, you know, is this something that is is really going to be an effort to uh, provide permanent tax reform, uh, deficit neutral, because it has to uh, live beyond uh, 10 years? Or, you know, do quite practically what was done in the early 2000s and try something out for 10 years? If it's Uh, good and it helps, uh, you can uh, extend it or or, or let it go. So all of those questions haven't been answered. And there is this opening position of the different parties, and that'll be worked out until until something's agreed upon. But I do think that, you know, the potential to get taxes cut, uh, and some of these issues are really uh, low-hanging fruit, like uh, the ability to bring profits that have never been taxed uh, at all, at, at some rate, uh, repatriating, those sorts of things uh, can be done. Let me ask you about political risk uh, in Europe. We've just been through the second round of the French election. Thomas in London. Of course, we have a snap election in London on the 8th of, of June. Uh, are we at a point where we're moving past the, the, the preponderance of political risk? Are, are things less risky when you look at politics than they were a couple of months ago? Well, yes. We've just passed through a potential shock uh, and it hasn't occurred. And that's sort of, you know, the story in markets and the reason why things are going well. There's been 
Uh, so as we mentioned before, no stimulus so far out of the United States, but no disruptions and no shocks. Uh, in the case of the near term uh, in Europe, uh, France was uh, looming large. You had a candidate who wanted to pull France out of the Eurozone. Now, whether she would succeed or not, that risk alone would threaten the periphery, uh, and that risk is off the table for the near term. Now, whether it resumes, you have to consider the fact that Italy's economy is the same size it was in 2004 and has uh, a population that's uh, you know, yeah. uh, feeling like it doesn't benefit quite as much. Stephen, in the time we've got left with you, let's uh, drift over to the investment world. Dow 21,012, futures up three, the VIX, uh, a whiting like 9.60. How do you stay invested? If I got 25, 26, 27 PE multinationals, is that nifty 50 to Stephen Whiting? Look, I think it's hard for many investors. They're, the ones that have not invested are having a hard time committing uh, to markets at these levels. I would tell them if they've been home-biased, U.S. dollar-based investors, as we've recommended for the last few years, to start looking internationally. Consider that you know global emerging markets, uh, equities are below their long-term average valuation. Not relative, but their own history. They're below average valuation. There are plenty of worries and risks, but that's why there's going to be some future return. And in the United States, uh, if you have earnings going up as much as they have, and I think they won't go up 15% every quarter forever, uh, but uh, I, I certainly think that this is not the valuation environment that we were in the late 1990s at all. Uh, this is not even close to that kind of valuation problem. So the direction of earnings will set the direction of markets for the most part. Do you sympathize with what Axel Merck was saying about um, investors' reluctance to hold on to cash at this point? Uh, do you think that, that investors should be holding on to more cash? Well, look, I think investors have held on to cash. You know, there's been, um, you know, a low volume, low confidence recovery since the financial crisis. And uh, cash has been, you know, a tremendous overweight, even in investment portfolios that are dedicated investment portfolios. Um, so, you know, would we have a little dry powder in the summer months is the time when we have frequent corrections that are temporary. Um, would we want to be able to allocate more with some cash? Yes. Uh, but I think for the most part, investors didn't have confidence that, uh, you know, we weren't doomed. And uh, they've held on, uh, a good proportion of them have held on to that view since 2008. Just a quick last question here about Latin America and, and what you're looking at there. I look at Dollar Mexico here at 1921.48, uh, amid still the rhetoric here in the U.S. about building a wall and how long it'll be and all of that. Uh, where's the opportunity in Latin America? Are you looking at sovereigns? Are you looking at, at corporate bonds? What's attractive to you? What's really fascinating is that if you just take, again, look at emerging markets, sovereign bonds, most of which are investment grade, uh, you could get uh, in the neighborhood of seven times the yield out of government bonds and emerging markets and local currencies than you could out of corporate bonds uh, in the eurozone, taking euro risk. So, uh, you know, Mexico, for example, uh, has seen its currency plunge and then get almost all of it back. Uh, but its bond market is hovering at a 7% local yield. So in Latin America, we think that there are good fixed income opportunities in particular. But like, uh, as, as always, equities would follow. Mm. Steve Whiting, great to speak with you, uh, as always. Yes. Steve Whiting with the City Private Bank joining us here on Bloomberg Surveillance. He is uh, the global chief investment strategist at City uh, Private Bank.
David Gura in New York, Tom Keen in London this week. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. The big news out of the day uh, in Korea today. Moon Jae-in poised to take power in South Korea, according to a leading exit poll as voters sought to end a nine-year a conservative rule there in that country. Scott Snyder joins us now. He is a senior fellow for Korea Studies and director of the program on U.S.-Korea policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. He joins us. Scott, great to have you with us. Let's start with uh, this candidate who apparently is in the lead, again, by uh, exit polls, Moon Jae-in. What can you tell us about him and his party here, uh, the, the, the more liberal of the two parties? Uh, that, that's right. He is uh, what they call a progressive candidate in South Korea. It's a liberal uh, platform that has uh, been in opposition to the conservative leadership uh, for nine years. Uh, Moon does have experience with leadership as a former chief of staff to uh, the then liberal president, No Mu Hyun, uh, in the mid-2000s. Uh, a lot of his policy platforms uh, actually draw directly from uh, that era. Uh, he is going to be uh, more favorable towards trying to have dialogue with North Korea. Uh, he wants to uh, have greater economic cooperation with North Korea as a way of trying to uh, change that country and try, trying to uh, ease the uh, tension and conflict uh, with the North. Uh, and he's also been uh, somebody who has raised questions about the uh, um, missile defense system that the U.S. has recently installed uh, in South Korea. He's called for a review of that decision, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to overturn it uh, at this point because South Korean public opinion is largely in favor of it. How big a departure would that be to have more engagement with North Korea? What's the, what's the status of dialogue between these two nations at this point? Well, really, nothing has been going on in terms of dialogue for the past few years. Uh, the progressives blame it on uh, conservative efforts to squeeze North Korea uh, and really to induce some kind of uh, regime change. Uh, but the North Koreans also are not configured to have dialogue with the South. Uh, the leading individuals who had been involved in inter-Korean dialogue in the past are no longer there. Uh, and at least as of now, Kim Jong-un has uh, a general who is in charge of trying to subvert yeah. South Korea in charge of his South Korea policy. Help us and all of our listeners with our coverage of the Koreas. You are truly one of the nation's experts on all of this. When you hear what I perceive as relatively simplistic coverage of North and South Korea, the, the new South Korea, the new government as well. What do we most get wrong in our coverage, Scott? Well, a lot of times uh, the headlines uh, seize upon uh, things that uh, are a little bit more sensationalistic, but when you start to dig in, uh, it, it seems like things are not uh, as dramatic. Uh, certainly on the North Korean front, Kim Jong-un uh, is portrayed as a stereotypical um, uh, kind of uh, joke, uh, but it's a deadly serious joke in terms yeah. of uh, uh, the nature of his leadership and the nature of the threat that he poses. Uh, in South Korea, you've got a kind of you know black and white contrast between choices uh, where, you know, really... South Korea is going to be is going to continue to be an ally of the United States, uh, and it's right. really a much more constrained choice. Does our president understand the brilliance that Scott Snyder just gave us? <laughs> um, well, we'll see. 
um, okay. the right strategy, uh, the, the right strategy in dealing with a, a progressive uh, leader in South Korea. Uh, he's getting um, advice from different uh, sources. Uh, some of them are pro-alliance, and some of them want a distance from the United States. And so the key to success is to cultivate the pro-alliance uh, people uh, in the new administration and actually to welcome and um, um, bring, on, bring along uh, Moon uh, as a leader uh, rather than do things like um, – threatened to make South Korea pay for a missile defense system that uh, it was understood the U.S. was going to pay for all along. What are the dynamics like right now in uh, in South Korea between the presidency uh, and the legislative branch? We talk about that in the context of France here most most recently, the challenges that Emmanuel Macron will face in, in, in France. In Korea, is it the same situation? Uh, how, how, much, uh, how, how much good faith is he going to get from the parliament when he's inaugurated? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, South Korea really has a system that allows uh, the winner of the plurality to become the president. Uh, frankly, if the South Koreans had the French system, I'm not sure whether Moon would be the next president because his party holds a minority in the legislature. Uh, and frankly, it's a system right now with four or five different parties that is designed for gridlock. So he's going to have an enormous uh, leadership challenge simply trying to get supporting legislation for the agenda that he brings um, you know, through the uh, National Assembly. David Gura in New York, Tom Keene in London this week. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. We're watching the election results come in uh, in South Korea today. Moon Jae-in poised to take power in South Korea. Uh, he's leading his conservative uh, opponent by 41.4% to 23.3%. Scott Snyder is with us. He is director of the program on U.S.-Korea policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Scott, let me just ask you to remind us how we got to where we are uh, today. Uh, we, we, we hear uh, having this election earlier than expected. What led to this moment? Yeah, that's very important because it really also has shaped the election outcome. Uh, essentially, the former president... Uh, it was discovered, uh, was linked to a uh, corruption and bribery scheme uh, that was really led by her very close uh, lifelong friend. Uh, and it uh, involved extortion of some of the major um, business conglomerates in South Korea. Uh, when that became public as a result of uh, information being discovered on the uh, a discarded laptop, uh, everything kind of unraveled. You saw public protests um, every weekend uh, through the end of last year, and then a formal uh, motion of impeachment against the president um, that was held up uh, in the Constitutional Court uh, on March 10th, and that triggered a 60-day period uh, during which uh, South Korea had to elect a new president. As you've been listening to the rhetoric on the campaign trail ahead of the vote, uh, today, how much of it is centered on that scandal? In other words, how much of the the platforms of these two leading candidates centered on uh, reform to the economic system uh, in South Korea? Um, well, certainly each candidate had his own uh, or her own um, policies for trying to uh, improve the economy and address corruption. But the the main advantage that Moon had was not in the candidate debates where. Uh, the various differences among candidates were featured, but really in the fact that his face had been uh, in front a lot of, of a lot of these citizen protests uh, that had occurred earlier in the year. Uh, and I think that he's basically uh, ridden the, yeah. frankly, public anger uh, with this uh, to victory.
We talk about North Korea and China. Scott, what is the relationship of South Korea and Beijing? It's a very interesting question because uh, China has really been imposing pretty much comprehensive economic retaliation uh, in cultural um, and consumer products against South Korea in retaliation for South Korea's decision to accept this missile, uh, missile defense system uh, that the U.S. is deploying uh, in South Korea. And so that really has had a major impact on uh, South Korean uh, views of China. We've seen about a 20 or 30 point shift in uh, Korean public opinion from positive to negative. Uh, and uh, that's an area actually where a new administration can try to pick up and get things on the right track. Uh, but uh, it's going to have to be under conditions where uh, the new leader doesn't uh, succumb to uh, China's rather brazen efforts to interfere. Uh, with national security decisions that have been made uh, in South Korea. How do you explain the way these uh, these family-run conglomerates work to those who, uh, who, who don't know of them? Uh, how do they work? Uh, it's an incredibly difficult thing to yeah, explain yeah. because uh, usually when specialists start to put up charts that show uh, the various cross-shareholding arrangements, uh, that are used in order to allow families to be able to maintain control of the conglomerates. Uh, it involves a, a page full of uh, arrows from one entity to another that is truly mind-boggling. Um, but essentially, um, you know, it's about uh, kind of um, controlling holding companies that, uh, in combination, uh, have allowed the family to still uh, maintain uh, control over these businesses that really have uh, grown to mammoth proportions compared to where they started. What, what, is, uh, what is President Trump's uh, p- policy position toward North Korea at this point? We have a good sense of it. We've had yeah. uh, his Secretary of State go through the region, his Secretary of Commerce. Yeah. Do, do we know what it is? Is it any clear? Scott, in 50 words or less. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the tagline is massive press, pressure and engagement, uh, but it's been confusing because on the one hand, he signaled willingness to potentially use the military. At the same time, he called Kim Jong-un a smart cookie and says he's willing to sit down. Basically, it's pressuring North Korea into dialogue, I think, is really what they have in mind. Hey, Scott, we killed 33,652 in one count in the Korean War. When you hear the president establish his foreign policy, and maybe it's a foreign policy away from Secretary Tillerson, is there any awareness of the sacrifice Americans have made on this important peninsula? Um, Well, uh, the main thing that uh, the administration needs to understand, and I think the advisors understand, but uh, it's not necessarily fully clear the extent to which uh, President Trump has absorbed it yet because of his penchant for maximizing uh, uncertainty. You know, and that's basically that you can say all options are on the table, but uh, given the consequences of military action on the peninsula, all options are not feasible. Uh, And therefore, uh, you know, threatening to use the military option uh, can come off as a bluff or a false threat. Well, then circle back to your original observation, which is the stability of the leader of North Korea. Uh, I mean, we, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's part of a Saturday Night Live skit. This isn't funny, is it? 
No, it's not. We're about to cross a threshold uh, with regards to North Korea's development of an ICBM. Uh, given the uh, perception of the leader, uh, even if he's rational, uh, most Americans would not want to be vulnerable to uh, the possible use of nuclear weapons uh, by this leader, uh, even if he's trying to uh, gain them in order to try to even the score with the U.S. Uh, and strengthen his own um, ability to survive. I urge all of you, Scott Snyder, the Council on Foreign Relations, and he is dedicated out of Rice University. Uh, his work on uh, Korea is just definitive. The backgrounders that you can see at the CFR site are just really quite uh, wonderful. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.